partnership with our, our church that we were part of for six years uh, in Raleigh, uh, Holy Trinity, and it was, uh, it was really sweet. It was just a precious time to be together with, with our family, our church family there. But um, afterwards, as we were leaving, we were so grateful, but we, uh, we just, Langley and I both remarked uh, how much we missed being here um, because even in such a short time, uh, Apostles has really become our church family and our church home. And so know that we missed you all and appreciate your prayers as we were there uh, for Langley's grandmother's funeral. Thank you all. So many of you reached out and just expressed your prayers and your concern for our family. So thank you. Um, I'm really excited uh, this morning for several reasons, uh, one of which is um, that our friend uh, Nancy Page Lohenfeld is here. Nancy Page, where are you? Are you in here? Ready? Oh, yeah. Hey, Nancy Page. Um, so Nancy Page is here. She's a uh, uh, long time, a part of our Apostles family, and she's studying in Oxford and, um, and really is a missionary that we support there. And so we're excited that she's here. and She's going to share a, a few minutes during our announcement. So excited that she's here. Uh, and then also I'm excited uh, that Sam Hermes is here. Sam in the room here. Sam, can you wave so everybody can see you, buddy? Yeah. So, um, so those of you who don't know, um, Sam had a major heart surgery um, just a few weeks ago. And uh, this is the first Sunday he's been back to worship with us uh, since his surgery. So we're just really, really glad you're here, Sam. So praise God for that. Um, I, I wanted to tell a, a little story about that. I remember, um, I think it was two days after Sam's surgery, and I went uh, to see him in the hospital. Uh, do you remember that, Sam, when I came to see you? Yeah. You, can you tell me who that is in the picture there with you? Bailey. Bailey. That's your good friend Bailey, right? Bailey uh, works at the hospital, and he came to, uh, to see Sam that day that I came. And so Sam was there making friends, having a good time. I think you were playing Xbox when I rolled in. You were looking good, buddy. You were doing awesome. Uh, and so I was so excited just to see all the answered prayers because so many of us have been praying uh, just for Sam and for his recovery and for his surgery. And so it was, it was just incredible to see how well he was doing considering uh, all that he had been through just a few days before. But I was even more excited um, after that because as I was visiting, I think Lizzie shared with me that uh, the doctors had just come in and basically said that Sam was going to get to go home the next day. So three days after major heart surgery, he was just doing so well, he was going to get to go home. And I was, I was like thrilled. So I literally, I think I, when I got in the car to leave the hospital, I called Langley and I was like, Sam's getting out tomorrow. You know, he's getting out for the hospital. And I, I text every red light. It was red lights. I texted. <laughs> I texted. Uh, and don't drive and text. I was texting and just telling, hey, have you heard? Like, Sam, you know. Um, and, uh, and I was just so excited. I just wanted, I wanted everybody to know. And even like by the time I got to Sunday, a few days later, I think, you know, some of you, I was like running around. I was like, have you, have you heard? Like Sam, is, he's out of the house. He's already at home. He just had surgery. He's already home. And like most of you are like, yeah, we are, we know that, you know. And I was just trying to find somebody that didn't know so I could tell the good news. And, and I thought of that this morning because um, that's what good news feels like, right? When you, when you hear something that's good news, you just, you want to share it. You just want to tell other people about it. And that's, that's what it should be like with Jesus, right? That's what it should feel like when we're talking about sharing the good news of Jesus. And uh, I think most of us who've encountered Jesus, we feel that way. We, we know it's good news. And yet, I think, too, we still have reservations when it comes to sharing Jesus. We're reticent 
maybe to share Jesus for all kinds of reasons. I think sometimes we're, we're concerned, um, you know, that we feel inadequate. Uh, we don't know what to say or how to do it right. Sometimes we don't share that good news with people in our lives because we're afraid of how they might react or if maybe we're afraid we'll be embarrassed or that they'll reject us or, or think we're weird or crazy or something like that for talking about our faith. And so I think there's all kinds of reasons why we might not talk about what we believe, why we might not share what we know is good news with other people in our lives. Um, but I, I do want to ask a, a question related to that, because um, I struggle with all those things too, but, but I want to ask a question this morning. Um, and the question is this, could it be, could it be that at some level we don't share the good news um, because we're not totally convinced it is good news, at least not for everyone. Is it possible that we're reluctant, especially given our cultural moment, is it possible, for example, that our confidence in, in the power of this good news, of the gospel, uh, our confidence that it's relevant for every person in our life, is it possible that that's been weakened? Is it possible that that's waned? You know, we've been making our way through the book of Acts. And it's interesting, if you've been reading along, and I hope you have, if you've been reading along in Acts, when you get to kind of the back third of Acts, it's really interesting because it, it, it pivots and it focuses almost exclusively on uh, the person and ministry of Paul, the Apostle Paul. So from about Acts 21 to the end, it's following the Apostle Paul. And what's interesting is that Paul is facing all kinds of pressure in these chapters, to give up on sharing the good news, to give up on the gospel. That's the pressure. And it's, it takes all kinds of forms. Some of it's religious, some of it's political, some of it's cultural, uh, to the point that he goes back to Jerusalem and he's arrested in Jerusalem while he's there. And the reason he's arrested is because he's telling other people, he's teaching other people that Jesus was the Son of God and that he's risen from the dead. It says that several times in these chapters. That's why he's been arrested. And then he's beaten, he's imprisoned, and this takes place over the course of like two years. He's kind of shuffled around under house arrest and imprisonment and all these different authorities. And during that time, he's put on trial uh, at least five times that recorded in the book of Acts. And in these trials, he's asked to defend his faith. And he does so each time. And he basically, what you begin to sense is that he's kind of caught up in this, he, he kind of becomes a pawn in this kind of political move, maneuvering between the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. And so he's kind of stuck there. And what's interesting is, if you think about why he's in that position, it would be actually very easy, in a sense, for him to get out of that position. right? It'd be very easy for him to give up on the good news. He could just say, okay, I was wrong. I, I, I don't believe this. And he would be free, perhaps. But not Paul. Now, Paul continues over and over and over in these chapters to share the good news of Jesus. Paul, what you see is Paul is crazy about Jesus. He's crazy. He cannot stop telling people about Jesus, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what we see with Paul. In fact, as we just heard, Kathy just read, in, at one point, Paul is standing before the Roman governor named Festus. And as Paul is sharing the good news, he's in the process of sharing the good news, Festus interrupts and yells at him, Paul, you are crazy. You're out of your mind. All this kind of religious stuff you got floating around up here, it's messed you up, is what he says. And you're wrong. This is crazy. And Paul's response to that is, 
no, I'm not crazy. In fact, this is the opposite of crazy. This is truth. This is rational. This is right, is what Paul says. In other words, Paul is so completely convinced, so completely convinced in his heart that Jesus is alive, that he was the Son of God, that God loved him and saved him, that he's come to save every single person that Paul encountered. He's so convinced of that that he will not, will not let it go. He won't let go of the gospel. I used to, uh, I used to serve in a ministry called Young Life. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Young Life, it's, a, it's an outreach ministry to high school students. So it's for students who would never kind of come to church or don't know what they believe about God. And so uh, part of what you do as a Young Life leader is you go to the high school. And you go to the high school, and the, and the goal is just to be a friend, uh, to come alongside students wherever they are, to love them, and to point them to Jesus. And so I did this in college. And, um, and I just want to tell you, uh, going on a high school campus where you don't know any kids and standing in the parking lot uh, as an adult, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you're ever feeling like you're cool, right, if you're ever feeling like, man, I kind of got life figured out, if you've got a big head, I can tell you how to solve that. <laughs> Go stand in a high school parking lot for just a few minutes where you don't know any kids. I cannot tell you how many times I got in my car after having gone out to the school and asked myself, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> why am I putting myself in a position where 14 and 15-year-olds are openly mocking me to my face? <laughs> Because I'm some weird adult who keeps showing up at their high school. And I would ask myself, why am I putting up with this? And, you know, what's interesting is, uh, is our area director, the guy who was kind of discipling and mentoring us and leading us as Young Life leaders, when we, very fir we first got started, he gave us this handout. And I still have a copy of it. Um, and uh, he gave us this handout because he knew. He knew how hard uh, it could be uh, to share the good news of Jesus, to kind of put yourself in that position. And so he gave us this, and I, I just want to read it. It's, it's, it's simple. It's called, Are You Convinced, is this handout he gave us. And I actually keep this up in my office because I look at this fairly regularly, just as an encouragement and a reminder. But it, he, he said this at the beginning. He said, when you think about all the obstacles, challenges, energy, time, expense, sacrifice, well, it would not take much time to become convinced there is ample reason to quit to throw in the towel, but to preserve, to succeed, uh, to persevere, you must be convinced that you have been personally called by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be involved in all this craziness. That's what he wrote. And then he, he listed, there's all these questions that he listed about are you convinced? Are you convinced of these things? And I just want to, I picked off a few of them, and I just want to read these to you. He, he, he said, are you convinced that Christ was resurrected in time, space, and history? Are you convinced that Jesus actually loves you and enjoys being with you? Are you convinced that God deeply loves those around you? That your needs have been met fully in the care of your heavenly father? Are you convinced that there's no greater privilege in your life than to share the good news of Jesus with those who haven't heard it? Are you convinced that God is with you always? Are you convinced that underneath it all, what people really long for is to hear the good news of Jesus? And on and on 
this list goes of these kinds of questions. Are you convinced? And then at, at the very bottom, uh, he wrote this. He said, are you convinced? If not, what are you doing? Why are you here? And then he wrote this. There are less demanding and much less rewarding ways to live. There are much less demanding and much less rewarding ways to live. You see, if we're going to share the gospel, we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we convinced? Are you convinced? Are you convinced? Because if you're not under pressure, the pressure of this world, you will give up on the gospel. I will give up on the gospel. And so I think it's a question that we all need to bring to the Lord. Lord, help me in those places that I'm not convinced, that I don't believe. In my unbelief, right, give me faith. So are you convinced? Paul was constantly telling others about Jesus because he was convinced. But, but, that's not the only reason he was so committed to telling others about Jesus. It's not just that he was convinced. He also was compelled. He was compelled by love. And you see that here in Acts 26. Look again. Acts 26, verse 26. He said this. Uh, for the king, and he was talking to King Agrippa. That's the king that uh, the governor had invited to come and hear Paul speak. So he says to this king, he says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things, and he was talking about these things being the death and resurrection of Jesus, none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa says to Paul, in such short time, you think you can convince me, persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul, in response, says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Paul says to Agrippa, I know that you believe. Paul says this, this person that the prophets were pointing to, right? This, this person that you've longed to, the, the Messiah, the Savior, you've been longing for and waiting for. It's Jesus. That's what he says. You know the prophets. They're pointing to Jesus. I know you believe, is what he says. But Agrippa doesn't believe. Agrippa doesn't believe. He says, you can't just put a little presentation, a little PowerPoint together, and now, oh, now I'm going to be a Christian. He says, no. He says, it's going to take more than that. He's resistant, right? Even though Paul has shared the good news of the gospel. And Paul, undeterred, I mean, beautiful, undeterred by Agrippa's response, says, I, I want you to have what I have. I want you to know what I know about this Jesus. I was thinking about what, what is it that Paul is doing here? Like, how can he say, I know you believe? What, what is it that Paul is getting at? And I think it's something like this, that Paul is saying, I know you don't believe, but I believe for you. Maybe we could think about it that way. I know you don't believe, but I'm going to believe for you. This past weekend, Langley and I, uh, we led our very first Alpha retreat. 
and it was amazing. We had such a great time. We, we took some of our guests from Alpha, and you know, Alpha is our, our course that we run where you can kind of explore the Christian faith. And so the folks that went, our guests, our friends, they're still asking questions. They're not sure who Jesus is. They're not sure they believe in any of this stuff. And so they went, and it was just a great time. We, we went down to Galveston, and we're uh, at this great house on the bay down there. It was beautiful. We had uh, great meals together, got to know each other, and we talked about the gospel. We talked about what is this good news and we talked about the Holy Spirit and what does it mean to, to know the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We talked about all these things with our, our unbelieving friends. And it was just, it was incredible to see the way the Lord was working on the weekend. It was so fun. And as we got in the car uh, to leave, um, coming back to Houston, uh, we were talking about it. We were processing the weekend. And Langley said something that, that really stuck to me. She said, um, she said, I've come to love these people so much. I've come to love these people so much, I feel called to believe for them. That's what she said. I've come to love these people so much, I feel called to believe for them. In other words, the the love, the amount of love she feels in her heart towards these people now, that God's kind of knit us together in relationship with them, the amount of love that she feels allows her now to see in their life something that they cannot imagine for themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? She's imagining their life, who they are, who they were called to be in Jesus. That's what she's saying when she's saying, I believe for them. I can see what they can't even imagine, the life that Jesus wants to have for them. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. That's what Paul has the heart to do, which is incredible when you think about the circumstances that Paul's in. These are not his buddies. These are not his friends. These are people who are standing before him, mocking him, imprisoning him, rejecting him. And his response is what? Is to love them. To love them so much that his longing, his heart, is that they would believe and that he's going to believe for them until they can see for themselves the life that God has for them. What it means to put their trust in Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I think about that picture, that sounds familiar to me. That sounds familiar. That sounds like someone I know. It sounds like Jesus, right? Loving your enemies, right? Loving those who persecute you. The words we just read in Luke 6, this is what it says. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Every sinner loves those who love them, and If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Every sinner does that. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. You will be like your father. And you'll love like your father because you've been loved. You know what it means to be loved that way. In other words, as uh, Luke writes, you will be merciful just as your heavenly father is merciful. You'll love people that way. It's the love that God has for us, you see. The love that God has for us, not that, that kind of spills out, not only for our friends, but even those who would reject us because of Jesus, who would come against us, who would be in opposition to us. It's that love that compels us to share the good news, to tell others Now, it's unlikely that any of us will ever uh, be hauled into a courtroom and asked to defend our faith with our life on the line. 
It's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely. But I do think every day we encounter people just like Festus and Agrippa in our lives. We encounter people who think our beliefs are ridiculous, who would say to us, or maybe just in the secret kind of their minds, they might say, you're crazy <laughs> if you believe that. This, this idea that Jesus was God, this idea that, um, that he died and rose from the dead, it's naive. It's old-fashioned, old ways of thinking. We encounter people who think this way. And when we do, the temptation is for us to shrink back, right? To pull back, to keep our faith private. That's the temptation that we face. But if nothing else, Paul's example here in Acts 26, what it tells us is, uh, look, whether you're looking at Paul here or you're looking at the life of Jesus or his other followers, um, being private about your faith is not an option. Private faith is not a thing in the New Testament. Kevin Rowe, who's a biblical scholar that I have a lot of respect for, he, he wrote a book about Acts. And in it he said this. He said, the book of Acts reveals that the kingdom of which Jesus is king is spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom in which we're driven along by the Spirit. He said that is true. But he says it's also material and social and political. It takes up space, in other words, in the public realm. It's not just private. And he says this. He says, in Acts, there is no such thing as a Christian in private. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. It's really interesting to me that this is the case in the New Testament. It challenges me, right, to think about this and think about the way that I live, that as one who's convinced and compelled by love, that I cannot shrink back from sharing the good news about Jesus because my faith is not private. Like Paul and the earliest followers of Jesus and all Christians down through history, we are called to bear witness, and that's a public witness, not a private one. It's interesting to me uh, in Acts 26 that Festus, this man in Acts 26 who calls Paul crazy, right? that's what he says, Paul, you're crazy for all this stuff that you believe. And yet, Festus keeps asking Paul to come and tell him about this good news. Isn't that interesting? So much so, that's how Agrippa and his wife Bernice get there. Festus says, man, I got this guy Paul over here, and he keeps telling me all this crazy stuff about this guy Jesus, who's obviously dead, but Paul thinks he's alive. Come over. Come over to my place and hear this guy talk. Festus is puzzled on the one hand, and yet he's attracted. Do you see that? It's, it's both here. He, he's puzzled. He can't get his mind around it. He thinks it's crazy, and yet he keeps coming back to it over and over again, so much so that he invites others to hear it. And I think as the church, our witness ought to have a similar effect. Right? It ought to be difficult, in other words, for people to figure out what box to put us in as the church. Oh, that's, that's, they're all Republicans. <laughs> they're all Democrats at that church. No. Something's gone horribly wrong. Oh, that's the church where rich people worship. That's the church where poor people worship. No. It ought to be really difficult for the world to figure out what to do with us. We ought to puzzle 
the world around us. And yet, we ought to also draw them. There ought to be something really powerful about the way that we love one another and the way that we, we cross barriers as a community, the way that we extend that love, not just to those who are part of the church, but to those who are outside, those who are poor, the orphans, the least in our city. There ought to be something that's, wow, wow, I don't, I don't get these Christians, and I don't even agree with them. And yet, and yet, when I look at some of the things they're doing, I'm amazed. I'm drawn to that. That ought to be the case. That ought to be what the good news of Jesus does. This week, I got to attend an event um, where I heard Griff and Julie Aldrich. Some of you know them. Um, some of you are related to them. Um, but I'd never heard them talk about their story. And I was at this event, and they were sharing about their story. And they, they worship with us on occasion, so you may meet them. But they live in Virginia now where Griff is a basketball coach. And he, he was sharing about how their journey kind of led them there. Uh, and in that story, he was just talking about how God challenged them uh, to really live in a radical way in terms of sharing the good news of Jesus. And I, I found this uh, great article online that kind of uh, talked about this aspect of their story. And I just, I want to read it to you because um, I think it's really, it's really fascinating in light of what we're talking about, about the sharing the good news, but also in a way that's puzzling and attractive. So this is what the article says. It says, Aldrich was not as in as he wanted to be. He would coach kids. So he was coaching basketball AAU down at this place called The Forge. It's a ministry in the third ward. He was coaching kids, and then he would drive back across town to the wealthy part of Houston where he lived. And after a while, he decided that he needed to do more. He said, quote, we would touch them, but with the chaos that they were living in, if you're only touching them once a week, that's better than no times a week, but it's not enough. And so the Aldriches moved into the third ward within walking distance from, from many of their players. They rented a house between Yates High School, where most of the players attended, and the Forge, and moved in with their infant son, Scott, the first of three children they would adopt. It became an after-school stopping point, with players coming over for dinner or just to hang out. One player with nowhere else to go lived with them for two years. When they, uh, they went to London for a little while, when they came back, this is what they said. When they came back from London, uh, they said, we had had a lot of time to reflect on who is it we want to be and how do we want to live when we come back to Houston. And Julie said, we had some friends who had lived overseas and said, it's easy to slide back into your old life. And they challenged us and said, if you have been changed personally, spiritually, if you've been changed, then what they said is, um, we want to encourage you to steward that experience well and to choose how you're going to live life back in Houston. And so uh, initially, they said they did that, and when they did that, uh, not everybody was excited about it, as excited as they were, uh, maybe. Because they said a lot of our friends and our family thought we were, get this, crazy. Yeah, Billy's saying, yeah, I thought they were crazy. They were insane. Uh, but they go on to say, in time, however, they blended their old life and their new and found it was possible to kind of live this life that they had found themselves in. And then the article said this towards the end, which I thought was really interesting. It says, uh, Griff says, it was an odd juxtaposition, but it was one that we grew to love because it allowed us um, to respond and to pursue this passion and this calling that God had put before us. And that, 
that stood out to me. An odd juxtaposition, right? Puzzling and yet attractive. There was something about that that didn't make sense and yet it made total sense, right? And what I want us to ask ourselves is, are there odd juxtapositions in our life? Is there an aspect of our life that people look at and they, I don't get it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. And yet I'm drawn to it. Not all of us are called to move to the third ward, to give up our jobs. Although some of us might be. Not all of us are called to those kinds of things. But all of us are called to live in a way that is sharing the gospel. To live in such a way that is puzzling and attractive. To share the good news with those around us. And so I just want to leave us with these questions that we brought up today. Church, are you convinced? Are you convinced? And then second, are you compelled by love? Are you compelled by love to share the good news of Jesus? We have such good news to share. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are our merciful Father and that you love us, Lord, you love us more than we could ever imagine. That is such good news. And you've demonstrated that in the person of Jesus on the cross. You've conquered sin and death. Lord, you have offered us life and you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we just wanna say thank you today. Thank you for what you've done for us and in us. And Lord, we pray that we would become convinced of that in the deepest part of who we are, that we, like Paul, would not be able to restrain ourselves from sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. Lord, because we love them, because you love them. So Lord, I pray that you would help form and shape us as individuals and as a church, as people who puzzle and yet are so attractive, people who are shaped by the good news of Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen.